0: If you had the choice of knowing or not knowing what's coming in the future, which would you choose? Well, you might say whether it depends on whether what's coming is good news or bad news. And of course, there's both. We understand that. We live outside of the garden. We live in a Genesis 3 world. In a a fallen world, there's always some trouble ahead. Jesus, in fact, tells us that each day has enough trouble of its own, so don't worry about the trouble that's coming tomorrow. For believers, those difficulties are mingled with God's blessings, always filtered through His sovereign care. But what if it were possible to know the specific troubling times that's coming at the end, the end of the age, the end of of mankind's time on the earth. Would you want to know the details about that today? Would you want to know that, that way out there in the, in the future that your children would be persecuted for their faith or your ancestors? Would, would you want to know that things will get worse before they, they get better and that Believers will be triumphed over by, by hostile forces. It, it almost seems kind of the opposite of, of what we glean from Scripture. Scripture is supposed to give us hope. And, and so how will knowing that information do that? The, the answer to the question, should you want to know from a scriptural standpoint, is yes, you, you should. The Bible tells us about all of those things. The question that we'll have answered this morning is why? The Bible tells us about all of those things. And it's not so you can stock up on ammo. The reason God wants you to know about the troubling times that are coming at the end is to prepare your faith for those days. You may read Daniel 7 and listen to all of the, the horns and the beasts and those kind of things and say, okay, how does that help me today? How does that help me this coming week? And the Bible tells us about those things in order to store up faith, not, not rations. so that when these times come or any time come, that they're difficult, you have the faith that you can be faithful to God. That's the twofold purpose of, of Daniel chapter 7. God tells believers of Daniel's day through, through this vision of troubling times that, that are coming in order to build their, their faith. He knows about them. And he, he foretells those things before they come. And, and before he does that, we've already seen in the stories that you know well from Sunday school that, that God gives them a reason for their faith. He gives them a hook to hang their faith on in the past as they, they look to the future. He shows them how he delivered Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego because if he delivered them, then he can deliver an entire nation in the future which is what he's talking about in Daniel 7. In the future, there will be a final kingdom that will arise like no other. It will be greater and more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar, the, the head of gold. Um, it will be led by a ruler that, that the world has never encountered. He, he will be far more blasphemous than, than Belshazzar. He'll rise and rule and he'll trample everything in his path, uh, even greater than, than the the powers of Medo-Persia, and he'll have particular hatred for God and his people. But the Lord delivers all of them in the end, and that's the message that Daniel receives. A story of troubling times that that are coming, and then also the promise of of redemption. And Daniel writes that down for us to read. And, And as we approach it, I think it's very important when you approach a passage like this to remember that our goal is to think, what did the original author, Daniel, mean to the original here? What would it have been like? Why did Daniel write this, this passage? And when you do, you realize that this chapter is not about uh, satisfying our curiosity over end times. The purpose of Daniel 7 is to reassure believers that at all times, God will, will triumph over His enemies. Daniel 7 declares the kingdoms of men might rule, but the God of heaven is the one who reigns. And in the end, the sovereign God will give His everlasting kingdom to His saints through the reign of His Son. And, and that's what a, the Jewish people felt whenever they read Daniel 7. Remember, whenever they're reading Daniel 7, they are exiled from the land. They're outside of the land, already being triumphed over by, by earthly rulers. And they're hearing there's worse to come. And then there's a greater deliverance as well. They heard troubling times are coming, but their triumphant God will conquer in the end. That's why the lessons of chapter 2 through 6 are so important. They've already learned that God knows the future, that He sets up rulers and takes them down, and that He delivers His faithful ones to trust in Him. Those are the three reoccurring themes that span the entire book of, of Daniel. God foretells world history in Daniel 2 and 7. He controls kings and kingdoms in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and humbling Nebuchadnezzar and removing Belshazzar. And God delivers his faithful ones. He delivers three young Hebrews through the fire. He delivers one old Hebrew, Daniel, out of the lion's den in chapter 6. You can think of Daniel 7 like the the red rip current flags that the the lifeguards put up uh, on the beach that your kids probably hate because they can't go in the water. For us today, I mean, as you, you, you look out, you say, well, there's troubling times. We, we don't like the current administration or this is bad in this part of the world or whatever it is. But the waters look fairly calm other than the, the normal waves rolling in. It doesn't look like revelation. But somewhere out there in the sea, Daniel says there is an ill tide rising with powerful currents beneath the surface that the average eye can't see. It's coming. Daniel 7 is like a weather report that, that can pick out the dangerous waters before they, before they come in. Jesus says we will not know the specific time that the Father has chosen, but, but we can see the signs of the times like a fig tree puts out its leaves. Daniel 7 gives us a portrait of this, of this fig tree so, so we can see. And we've been examining this great, great chapter. We're going to conclude Daniel chapter 7 today. And really, it, it kind of feels like, like reaching the bottom of the first hill of a, of a King's Dominion roller coaster. I mean, the first half of Daniel 7 was exhilarating. We see the four beasts, and we see the, the throne room vision, and the coming of the Son of Man. But, but there's still more to come. In fact... Chapter 7, while it ends the historical section of Daniel, it only begins the vision section of Daniel, which, which goes through the rest of the book. And you can see that, that chapter 7 sits right here in the middle. You can see that, that in the theme and also the language change, that, that it kind of has a, has a foot in both worlds. Chapter 7 is still in Aramaic, so that marries it through uh, to chapter 2 through 6, but, but the category is a vision of the future, and, and so that that introduces the series of visions that are in chapters 8 through 12. And chapter 7 sits right here in the middle of the book, functioning with this dual purpose. It's a climax to the stories, and it's a, it's a preface to the visions. It's, it's pivotal, which is why we're taking our time going, going through it. We saw it has two parts. It has a detailed vision of Verses 1 through 14, and then it has a disturbing interpretation in verses 15 through 28, which is what we're going to see today. God foretells world history, both in chapter 2 and chapter 7. Both describe four earthly kingdoms and a kingdom of God that replaces them, that, that reigns forever. But, but chapter 7, we saw, changes vantage points and, and provides additional detail. It, there's more detail about the fourth kingdom in chapter 7. There's an explanation about how this final king will rise and wage war on God's people. And more importantly, it's told from heaven's perspective. It's always a better vantage point, uh, looking from from the top down rather than the bottom up. And this vision leaves Daniel with some questions, lots of concerns, which is what we'll look at today. I mean, Daniel is terrified twice in this chapter. Once in verse 15... When he starts the interpretation, and he's still that way in verse 28, the very last verse of of this chapter, Daniel is still terrified. And he asks a series of follow-up questions after he sees the vision. Like, uh, who are the ten horns? And who is this little horn that grows larger? I mean, he wants to know details like, like you and I do. And of all the questions that Daniel asks in this chapter, his entire focus is on this fourth kingdom. I mean, Daniel, think about it. Daniel understands the heavenly scene. Daniel asks no question whatsoever about who is this ancient of days. Uh, um, He he says nothing about the Son of Man. I mean, he understands he's the Messiah. He he doesn't say, who is this guy? He gets all of that. Not a whimper about God judging and removing. and, and None of that's confusing to Daniel. But he hasn't heard about this forthcoming kingdom. He wants more info about what is it going to be like on the earth when this king rules. And about this fourth beast who's trampling and using his iron teeth. And here's the key, using it on the saints of God. And that's why Daniel's troubled. Daniel's not troubled about evil kingdoms or evil kings. He's weathered them throughout his entire life and ministry. Daniel is particularly troubled about this vision and how this is going to be poured out upon the, the saints. So the second half of the chapter is designed to answer those questions and resolve what will happen to God's people. And it does so in a very dramatic way. There are six scenes in this total chapter. We've seen three. We're going to see the other three today. Scene one is Daniel's bedroom. He, he, he's there and he gets this vision in the night in verse 1. Scene two is the vision of what will take place on the earth. That's when we saw the four beasts coming up out of the sea. The third scene is then when Daniel's transported to the very throne room of God and the heaven overlooking earth. And then the three we'll see today. Scene four is Daniel's fear and his request for an interpretation in verses 15 through 18. And then Daniel's specific request for detail but the fourth beast and the little horn, verses 19 through 27, and then Daniel's response to the interpretation. We've seen the vision of the four earthly beasts. We've seen the vantage point from heaven. We've seen the visitation of the Son of Man. And today we're going to get the verdict from Daniel's questions. It's a, what we'll call a divine weather report of troubling times to come. So following this heavenly vision of the Son of Man's glorious coming... Daniel's fear leads to a request for an interpretation, verses 15 through 16. So he has a concerned question. That still, the angel responds and gives an overall interpretation as a clarifying overview of what's going to happen in verses 17 through 18. That doesn't satisfy Daniel, so he makes a specific request about the fourth beast and this little horn. He calls for detail in verses 19 through 22. The angel responds with a catastrophic description of what is coming and then Daniel has a concerned response at the end. He's afraid for God's people. Let's look at the first one, this concerned question that Daniel asked. Look at verse 15. Ask for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. And the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. Daniel wants to know what you want to know. What's the meaning of all of this? Is this just a bunch of, of visionary stuff? What, what, what does it mean? So after Daniel's been looking for a while, in this interactive vision, his heart begins to sink. He sees something that troubles him, and, and he can tell it's not good. Verse 15 is interesting, though, because in the first six chapters, Daniel is, is said to have the ability to interpret visions and dreams. I mean, that's what distinguishes Daniel and, and keeps his ministry going through, through all of these years of, of pagan kings. He's the one who has the spirit of the holy God in, in him. But, but here Daniel requests more information and the interpretation I mean, he knows it involves governments and disorder and overthrow. I mean, but he's unsure of who it is and when it will take place. So he asks, verse 16. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. Now remember, Daniel has already had the interpretation of chapter 2. Uh, that's been interpreted for him. He, he had the interpretation and he shares with Nebuchadnezzar the golden statue. He seeks more information here from one of the angels standing in the vision. And remember, a vision is not passive like a dream. A dream is there, and you get a dream. You're asleep. But a vision, one said, it's like like virtual reality. It's interactive. Daniel is part of it. He's in the middle of this vision. And as part of that vision, there are angels standing around there, and Daniel approaches one of the angels, and he asks, What's the meaning? It's the first of three times an angel uh, that an angel assists Daniel in the book. The other two are in Daniel 8 and then Daniel 9, and we'll see those passages whenever we get there. Uh, some think this is the angel Gabriel, but he's not named, so we don't know for sure. Whichever, whichever angel it is, God uses him to explain the vision to his servant and to us. And so the angel then begins to answer with an overview. He gives him general information in verses 17 through 18. Look at the end of verse 16 and how that spills in. So so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. And here's the interpretation. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. So the angel begins by, by giving an overview of the entire vision, and he says that the beasts represent four earthly kings, and we've already identified those in, in the previous two messages. Nebuchadnezzar is, was over Babylon, the, the winged lion. Cyrus was the leader of Medo-Persia, um, the, the, the bear, and then Alexander the Great led the the, the, the leopard, like of Greece, and ultimately the Antichrist is going to reign over this fourth kingdom, or reconstituted Rome. But did you notice there's some new information here? What is new here in this overview is a mention of the saints of the highest one who receive the kingdom and possess it forever. We've already been told about the kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of Man in the heavenly vision. Look back at verse 14. Verse 14 gives us the nature of the kingdom of the, of the Son of Man. So here is the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days, and, and the Ancient of Days bestows upon him, verse 14, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. The, the kingdom that's coming it will be a kingdom of all authority. It will have full dominion. It will be a glorious kingdom. It will be a universal kingdom. Look at what else it says here. That all people peoples, nations, men of every language might serve Him. A authorial kingdom, a glorious kingdom, a universal kingdom, and it's an unending kingdom. It's an everlasting kingdom uh, that has everlasting dominion which will not pass away, which will not be destroyed. But it's given to Him. It's given to Christ. To Him was given. But in verse 18 we get more information. It tells us that The saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Verse verse 18 gives us more information. It tells us that the saints will rule and reign with Christ in this kingdom that's given to Him. Just as the New Testament declares. Do you remember what Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 19, 28? Truly I say to you that that you who have followed me in the regeneration, that's in the kingdom, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's what he said to the disciples. And you say, well, that's disciples. What what, what about me? Well, 2 Timothy 2.12 tells us if we endure with him, we'll also reign with him. But I think likely the most helpful passage you you probably know well in verse Romans 8, 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. It's a kingdom reference. And then Paul gives the the reminding motivation for the suffering that we face on the earth, just like Daniel is doing here. Look at how that ends in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, before the kingdom comes, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. As a believer, you and I have a king. And that king will be given a kingdom by the ancient of days. But as a believer, as a follower of that king, you're a joint heir of that kingdom. You're a possessor of the kingdom that is coming. That's why you're an alien, a pilgrim, a stranger. That's why this world's not your home. You're part of a kingdom that's coming. Can you fathom that? I mean, I know this is, this is theological. You know these things in the Bible, but, but, but has that sunk in? I mean, not only has God saved you from wrath, you're, you're not headed for hell anymore if you're a believer. He's forgiven your sin. He's cast it as far as east is from the west. and He's washed you by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. He's made you alive from, from the dead. He's given you a new nature. You've, you've been made a new creation in Christ Jesus. And He's now your Father. But the Bible also says Jesus is your brother, the second person of the Trinity. And we are co-heirs of every right of the covenant that Christ possesses by being in him. Charles Spurgeon said, Our right to the divine heritage stands or falls with Christ's right to the same inheritance. We are co-heirs. If he be truly an heir then so are we. And if he be not, then neither are we. It all rests in Christ and we are in him. And verse 18 says that this reign and kingdom will be forever. Yes, forever and, and, and ever. It's part of the angels clarifying a review. L- literally, to the, f- to the forever and to the forever of forevers. Now, the reason that, that you would repeat something like that three times is, is to be emphatic. and The eternality of this kingdom that you and I possess, that we're headed for, is, is expressed in the most emphatic way possible. What a glorious promise. And as amazing as that is, that does not answer the question that troubled Daniel's heart. In fact, it amplified it. So he asked for more information, which is Daniel's call for detail. Look if you would verse 19. Then, I mean, after he finds he's a joint heir and the kingdom is going to be given to the saints, then I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. Now we're drilling down to Daniel's main concern, which was different from all others, exceedingly dreadful, and it had iron teeth and claws of bronze, which, uh, which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that that were on its head and the other horn which came up before it and which three of them fell, namely the horn which had eyes and mouth uttering great boasts which was larger in appearance. And I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and the judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Now, earlier, the earlier answer in verses 17 through 18 that the angel gives is a quick quick summary of what happens on the earth. Four kings will arise, they're going to be replaced, and God's kingdom will be full of his subjects who who will reign. That's wonderful news. But if that's true, Daniel wants to know, what about this fourth kingdom that will trample the saints? I mean, if the saints are going to receive the kingdom... He understands the heavenly scene. He gets the Son of Man as Messiah that God will judge. None of that's confusing to him. But he hasn't heard about this fourth kingdom that's coming. And he wants more info about it. There's a lot to unpack here, but the key is in verse 21. Look at it again. This is what grips Daniel's heart. I kept looking. I kept looking. And the horn that was waging war with the saints was overpowering them. And now we know why Daniel wants to know. It's because this earthly ruler is going to wage war on God's saints. And he'll win, at least temporarily. The fact that the little horn would successfully persecute believers had not been previously revealed. And Daniel is pale over this part of the vision. I mean, Daniel's not colorless or shaky because he fears a beast or a little horn. I mean, he's faced down lions and, and, and God's uh, shut their mouths. Even though this kingdom is unique and, and so much so that he can't even find an animal to, to compare with it. But, but he is white because he watches people that love God, including Israel, suffer. And he watches them be devoured by this beast. And remember, what we're reading and trying to imagine in our mind through these visions, Daniel is seeing I mean, he's, he's there. He's able to talk to this angel. He's watching. I mean, think of how troubling it would be if you were able, for some way, to, in virtual reality, to see someone coming into Timberlake Baptist Church and just mowing people down. And you couldn't do anything about it. You watched them fall in, in the midst of service. People that you love and people that, that you know your heart would probably be gratefully troubled. You'd want to know, when's this going to happen? How's this going to happen? Who is this person who's going to, going to do this? Is, is, uh, is God going to do something about it? And we ought to be the same way. Listen, if the, the triumph of evil and the destruction of people, many of who will perish eternally, and the suffering of, of the saints, if that doesn't move you, Then you've got some calluses on your heart and you need to ask God to give you his heart. If if you're not moved by the effects of sin that that happens in in, in the lives of people around you, then then you're too self-focused. There's pain in this world. And yet Jesus Christ is the answer to that pain. God takes no pleasure in the death of of, of the wicked. I mean, you realize... Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen when He comes. He knows when He comes, His own is not going to receive Him. He comes to them, and they won't receive Him. And yet, even in the, 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 in the middle of His ministry, as He gets about halfway down the hill, He overlooks Jerusalem, knowing that they're not going to receive Him as king. He weeps over the city. He holds out open arms to sinners, that has spurned his grace over and over again. The sovereign God, who already knows whether men and women are going to be saved or not, still is concerned and holds out his arms. I mean, God has perfect theology, if anybody does. And his theology of sovereign grace doesn't keep him from longing for sinners to repent. He's grieved over the fact that some of them won't repent. And he still holds out the gospel to them. And if you saw it in Living Cover, you would probably ask some of the same questions that Daniel does as well. And that's what Daniel's doing here. And so the angel answers. He gives a catastrophic description of what's coming to Daniel's multiple questions. Daniel doesn't just ask one question. He asks, what about this, and what about this, and what about this? Verse 23. Here's the angel's response. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down, not just the saints now, but the whole earth and crush it. So the fourth beast is interpreted right here in verse 23. Then the ten horns in verse 24. Then the little horn that grows large, verses 24 and 25. And then the final kingdom is interpreted in verses 26 and 27. But the angel starts by saying this fourth empire will be different. It will rise out of the earth. It will rise up amongst people, outside of the garden, Genesis 3 people. And it will be unlike others, though, in power. And it will crush all that resist it. In this final form, this empire that's coming in the end will make Mao Zedong look like a kitten. It will make the might of Hitler's army seem like the Cub Scouts. There's been no leader or military power in history that the world has ever seen that will compare to this fourth kingdom. And it will consist, this kingdom will consist of ten rulers that rise from its original form. Look at verse 24. As for the ten horns, now the angel explains the ten horns, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise Another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. So verse 24 clearly tells us that that the ten kings will come out of this fourth kingdom, which is Rome, so the last kingdom. And here's where you see a gap in the prophecy that can't be filled in here in Daniel. You have to wait for the New Testament to fill it in. I mean, there's a large gap that's not revealed yet because it's unknown to Daniel. Daniel doesn't know about it, so Daniel can't say anything about it. And you should remember the principle of progressive revelation here when when you read Daniel 7. I mean, think about it. God's plan is, is not delivered like a dump truck. He doesn't just come in and dump His entire plan of redemption. When you read the Scriptures... It's more let out like water from a dam, a little bit at a time, and, and then it, it, it flows throughout the pages of, of Scripture. It, it, his eternal plan is not unveiled like a like a like a beautiful statue and that, that's covered in a you know in a sheet, and all of a sudden God just rips it away. It, it becomes clearer and clearer, kind of like a, maybe like a wheel of fortune puzzle when consonants and vowels are, are added. You can make it out and you can tell it says something and then a vowel is given and, and, then, and, then a, and then a consonant, oh yeah, I see it, finally. It's unveiled, unveiled in Scripture. Daniel 7 is like the macro, it's like the big picture. It's like the, the, the mountain range that doesn't see the valley between the two comings of, of Christ. It's the New Testament that fills in the valley and reveals details, like, like Matthew 24. I mean, Matthew 24 is an expository sermon of the book of Daniel, spoken by Christ Himself. And then Revelation explains how it will all happen. It, it zooms in on how God dismantles the kingdoms of the earth blow by blow and, and how His glorious kingdom with Israel at the center of it will, will rise. It's the forest that, where you can actually see the trees. I mean, for instance, the the Old Testament saints knew that the Messiah would come in the future, right? I mean, Isaiah 53, Daniel, talking about the the Son of Man, they knew the Messiah was coming in the future, but it's not until the New Testament that we learn that he'll come not once but twice. They don't know about the two comings. And that's why Daniel doesn't know about the two phases of the Roman Empire. Daniel doesn't know about the two phases of this fourth kingdom. Todd Dykstra said, It's not surprising because the Old Testament never anticipated the mystery form of the kingdom, the church age. And since the Lord's second coming puts an end to the, to the rule of these ten horns and, and ten kings, I mean, they're, they're put down by the second coming of Christ, and Christ has come once and he's ascended into heaven, he's coming again, that's when this is going to take place, at, at the end. And they're reigning at the end. According to Revelation 17, 12-13, they'll, they'll reign individually, but also operate as one empire. The ten horns, which you saw, are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. And they have one purpose. And they give their power and authority to the beast, So if you put all of that together, out of the old Roman Empire will will arise ten kings or kingdoms and they'll operate somehow in, in in a single unit. And they'll constitute a new phase of that empire at the end of this present age. And they'll be ruled by one king or one ruler. Look at verse 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones, and he'll subdue three kings, three of the ten. So this little horn is now identified as a king as well, a ruler in the last day. And just like this final kingdom is different from the other four, this final king is different from all previous rulers. This is the Antichrist of 1 John 2.18. He's also called the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. He's the beast in Revelation 13. Now we've already been given a number of details about about this, this king in verse eight. He'll rise to power after 10 kings are in existence. He'll rule with those ten kings. He'll subdue three of them. He'll be intellect. Uh, he'll have intellect, he'll, he'll have eyes like the eyes of man. He'll be arrogant and boastful. He'll gain the world's approval. Well, there's some new information here, verses 21 and, and 22. Daniel says he'll wage war with the saints. Referring to his persecution of the saints in the tribulation, especially Israel. Again, Todd Dykstra, these saints are not church age saints since the existence of the church in the present age was a mystery. It's unrevealed in the Old Testament. These saints refer to the the believing Jews present when Christ returns. These are tribulation saints. It's the time of Jacob's trouble that's coming. And. And he'll overcome the nation of Israel and will bring them under his authority. He'll exercise authority over the Jewish people until he's judged by God when, when Christ returns and executes judgment. Verse 25 details his tactics. Look at Verse 25, this is what this, this ruler, this evil ruler will do. He'll speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he'll intend to make alterations in times and law, and they'll be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. This final king that's going to come out of this revived Roman Empire will blaspheme God and persecute his people, and and he's going to act out his hatred toward God in three ways. He'll blaspheme God, he'll speak out, he'll attack God's people in verse 25, He'll, he'll wear them down, and then he'll try to set up his own religion. By changing the times and laws. That's what verse 25 says. He'll blaspheme the Lord with profane and irreverent speech. Second Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians 2 4 tells us how he'll do that. It'll be by claiming to be God Himself and demanding worship. The apostle Paul says, "Let, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the son of destruction. There's the horn who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He'll also oppress the saints living during the time. The, this is a wear them out. You have a favorite pair of jeans. I heard one say, like, you know, the, your T-shirt from college days that you've washed until it's threadbare. That's, that's the idea. It, it's, he'll wear them down. He'll wear away at believers. He'll, he'll harass believers until their lives become miserable. And he'll do that by removing religious freedom and regulating worship, setting up his own worship. That's what verse 25 means. When it says he'll, he will attend to make alterations in times and laws. Jay Montgomery said the word set times likely refers to religious holidays, which the Antichrist will attempt to eliminate. The reference to laws is probably religious laws. It just means he'll use his influence to change the entire landscape of worship all over the world and the observance in society. Religious freedom will be abolished. Economic pressure will be applied to force the subjects to follow him and reject religion. That's what Revelation 13.17 7, means. And it talks about the mark of the beast. He provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number. He'll change laws. He'll make it po- impossible. He'll do. In short, he'll do everything he can do to overturn everything that God has established, particularly the, the distinctive character of the worship of God's people. Stephen Miller said, the the, the denial of religious liberty is a characteristic of dictators. Nero and Domitian and Stalin and Hitler. But the Antichrist will go beyond what anyone has done before in his attempt to create a thoroughly secular society. And while this time hasn't come, the Bible says the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world and you can see the influence of that, can't you? They're those seeking to rid society of any vestiges of Christianity. Want to make it a secular society. And Satan's goal is, is to set up where he will be worshipped. And the Bible says he'll be successful for a period of time. Look at verse 25 again at the very end of it. They, that's the saints, will be given into his hand for a time. It's one. Times, plural, two. And a half time, one plus two and a half equals three and a half. And just like in Daniel 1, whenever Jerusalem, when Israel was, Judah was given over by God, God will give over his people and allow for a temporary subjection to prepare them for, for their Messiah. And how long will, will they be subjected? Well, Daniel says three and a half periods, three and a half times. And we're not told how long that period of time is, but, but we get clarity later. The same word is used in Daniel 4.16 and it means seven years. Times means years. The Hebrew equivalent of the word used in Daniel 12 means three and a half years. Revelation 13.5 says the beast will have power for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And Revelation 11.2 says Jerusalem will be trampled on for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And And then later in Daniel 9, Daniel 9, 27, the covenant of the Antichrist that that he makes is broken in the middle of the 70th week, three and a half years. So the wearing out of the saints and all this persecution that follows will build over time, but it becomes red hot in intensity for three and a half years, and the Bible calls this the, the peak of the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. Our Lord spoke about it in Matthew 24, which is a perfect parallel to the seven seals of Revelation foretold by the Lord himself. It's in the Olivet Discourse, you remember the disciples want to know what Daniel wants to know. When will the kingdom come? And what will be the sign of the coming? Give me some details. And Jesus answers in Matthew 24. 1st we'll become deceptive peace and false prophets declaring that they'll fix everything and then a worldwide war and famine and earthquakes. And it's exactly what Daniel foretells here and what John sees in Revelation 6 in detail with the six riders. And all of this foretold hundreds of years before and throughout the Old Testament. John is seeing in Revelation the day of the Lord. Jesus is talking about the day of the Lord in Matthew 24. Daniel's 70th week is, is the time of great tribulation and the purpose is for God to pour out judgment on the unbelieving nations of the earth and prepare Israel for the return of Christ and to usher in the millennial kingdom. And that's what's described next. Look at, you at verse 26. But the court will sit for judgment. So there's a period of subjection and it's limited by God. And then the court will sit for judgment and His dominion will be taken away. That's the little horns. Dominion will be taken away. It will be annihilated and destroyed Forever. So the reign of terror won't last forever, and that comforts Daniel's heart. This ruler will dominate in all those three ways for three and a half years, but at the end of the period, his reign will end abruptly. And you say, How is that possible? When I read Revelation and Daniel 7, and I'm, I mean, these are these are hundreds of years of empires. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and, and then Alexander the Great, and then the Roman Empire. Now they're talking about ten kings and, and a revitalization of all that. I mean, that, that, that's changing of laws. I mean, this happens globally. You can't buy or sell without this system in place. I mean, that, that takes a lot to get that up and, and, and running. How is it going to just end like that? Can you think of another time that God's already proven that he can do that earlier in Daniel? You think of a king named Belshazzar who was actually ruling while Daniel receives this this vision. And just as God removed Belshazzar, a boastful and powerful king who was mocking God in the midst of his mocking of God, drinking from the temple cups... God's finger has written another judgment on the wall of history to be carried out in the future. And he'll remove the Antichrist in the same way, like that. Daniel says the court of God's judgment will convene and pronounce sentence or destruction on the Antichrist. And that's what we saw in the heavenly vision in verses 10 and 11. And here it is meted out on the earth. And just like his dominion was granted, it will now be taken away and he'll be destroyed forever. The Aramaic is to destroy and to destroy forever. It's not possible if all of this refers to the church ushering in the, the kingdom and the church replaces Israel because Satan is still present in the world. Revelation 20 echoes this same scene. And pay attention to a detail I'll point out here. This is Revelation 20. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Watch this. Where the beast, that's the little horn, and the false prophet are. They're there already. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Notice the beast is already there. This is after the thousand year reign of the kingdom. And after the destruction of his army, Satan himself will be cast into the lake of fire. And John reminds us that this is where his two other minions have been for the entire millennium. And before the millennial comes, Christ will depose the, the little horn and he'll be cast aside along with the false prophet. And then the Lord will reign on earth in his millennial kingdom Satan will be bound loose at the end of that, and then he'll end up in the lake of fire as as well. Now the entire unholy trinity is in the eternal lake. Satan began his rebellion before the garden with these words. Isaiah 14, 4. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And God responds to him then. Here's God's response. You shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. And right here in Daniel is the fulfillment. After thousands of years of terror and deception and evil work, after millions and millions of babies slaughtered and drugs consumed and false religions and idols formed, after billions of souls have been misled, Satan meets his end in divine judgment verse 10 of Revelation says they'll be tormented day and night forever. And after that the eternal kingdom will be given to the saints to reign with Christ. Look at verse 27 of Daniel. It says, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven watch this, will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Still talking about the saints. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion All the dominions will serve and obey him. Three times in this chapter, the kingdom is given to the saints in verse 18, 22, and 27. Upon the destruction of the Antichrist and his kingdom, Christ will establish his earthly kingdom, a worldwide kingdom that will be given to the saints. And now the kingdom of God fills the earth. War is no more. Peace and prosperity that everyone clamors for will come, and this kingdom will be a be one that's everlasting and filled with the worship of Christ. Remember verse 14? To him is given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. That's worship. And that's coming. But right now, even this very hour, even there's a king. The earth is filled with people made by God to worship him, but they don't, do they? In fact, they rebel against him and they hate him. But all of that rebellion will be put to end on this day. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and then heaven and the kingdom will only be filled with those who worship the Son. Daniel responds to all that he receives, uh, all that he sees in this final response. Look at verse 28. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me. My face grew pale, and I kept the matter to myself. Can you imagine? All of a sudden, whoo, revelation ends. Seeing it, living it, being part of it. Daniel says the revelation ended, and it, it as abruptly as it came, it, it left. He sees destruction and persecution and judgment and the kingdom of the saints reigning forever. And as as encouraged as Daniel is at the end of this vision, he's greatly troubled by what God's people have to go through to get there. And frankly, that's how we should be when we're thinking about the kingdom. We should be overjoyed about the kingdom of Christ that's coming. Uh, No death, no devil, no sin, no temptation. But we should be alarmed about what's coming before we get there. There are troubling times coming. It will get worse before it gets better. Men will perish. Believers will give their very lives for faith. God will be mocked and Satan will temporarily triumph. And God foretells all of this because he wants your faith to be strong. He wants you to remember through Daniel, that he knows the future, that he sets up rulers and takes them down, including the evil ones, and that he delivers his faithful ones that trust in him. Tells us that so we can apply those lessons whenever that comes in our lives. Just as God rescued three young men in chapter 3 and one old man in chapter 6, he's going to rescue a whole nation in the very end according to chapter seven. And just as God humbled pagan kings and removes the evil ones in the end, he'll he'll do the same thing in your life. And he can do it today. But you bow your heads. Father, we marvel at the fact that you you are able to see and you tell us what's coming. And Lord, while we don't know the specific time, just like you told the disciples, we can see the leaves on the tree and know that it's it's soon. And you tell us all of these things um, so that we'll be ready, ready in our heart. And let, yet, Lord, no doubt, as we're sitting here today, we're... We're living in a cursed world, and there's pain and evil, heartache. And you're a God who can declare the end from the beginning and bring about all of these things, but you're a God who cares about the pain in our heart even right now. You love us. You intervene in big ways, and you intervene in small ways in our lives. And, and Lord, we would pray that you would do that even now. We'd also pray that above everything else, you would give us faith to believe what you said. It, it, it's the, it's the, the, the railroad tracks. It's the, the steel in our spines. Give us that, Lord, because we want to be faithful. We want to long for your coming, and we want to be used until this day comes. Even if it gets hard, we want to bring you much glory because you've saved us, and you've made us joint heirs with your Son. And it's in his name we ask all of these things. Amen.